What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Matt Bodner. There's no kind of get-rich-quick scheme in terms of being a better decision maker. Being a better decision maker and improving your ability to make decisions is something that is a lifelong journey. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Matt, thanks for making time. Jess, thanks so much for having me on here. So uh, why don't we jump right into it? Will you tell us a bit about your podcast and about your investment background? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to give everybody some context, today I'm a partner uh, at a venture firm called Fresh Hospitality. Uh, Fresh essentially invests kind of across the food service value spectrum. Uh, We invest in everything from farms to production facilities to really the two largest components of our portfolio are uh, restaurant operations and commercial real estate development. And then we have a number of uh, kind of ancillary businesses and things like technology, marketing, uh, real estate, uh, that sort of stuff that helps support and empower uh, the other core components of our portfolio. To give you just to put a little bit of kind of numbers behind this to give some context uh, within the restaurant portfolio specifically, uh, we have to date about 155 restaurant locations across 18 different restaurant concepts. Uh, we invest typically very early stage one to five units uh, and our sort of specialty is that we layer in a lot of these systems and processes that enable those brands to scale from single unit or very small concepts into sort of regional or eventually hopefully national chains. 
Um, and what we do or kind of, you know, what we specialize is the, is in the fast casual segment. Uh, and so that's when you think about brands like Chipotle, Panera Bread, et cetera, we try to position ourselves on kind of the higher end of that spectrum. Um, and we invest with, uh, you know, very early stage entrepreneurs and our specialty is kind of helping them with all of the, uh, what the people call in the restaurant business, the back of the house, which is technology systems, processes, accounting, all of those kind of pieces of the puzzle. To give you a little bit of context about portfolio size, uh, our current restaurant portfolio does uh, about $225 million in annual sales. Um, the other big component of our portfolio is commercial real estate. So we do a lot of commercial real estate investing and development. Uh, we have uh, to date approximately $300 million in assets that are in our commercial real estate portfolio today. And then another about $90 million that's in some form of development, whether that's construction, uh, contract, on, you know, closed, something like that. So those are kind of the two main things that we do uh, in the investing world and kind of at fresh. And uh, without going on too much of a, a sort of a diatribe, and I can tell you the details of this story, it, being an investor, I've always been obsessed with uh, kind of the art and the idea of decision making. And that came about by studying one of the greatest investors of all time and somebody I know you're a big fan of as well, Warren Buffett. And so uh, I know you're a huge reader and, and I am as well. And I've read uh, you know, almost everything that's been written by or about Buffett and through that kind of stumbled across – uh, one of his business partners or kind of his main right-hand man, a guy named Charlie Munger, who's really, really into psychology, decision-making, all that stuff. Long story short, and we can definitely get into the background if, if you want to dig in, uh, I, I ended up accidentally, essentially, as I call it, creating a podcast about a lot of the stuff that uh, Charlie Munger talks about. So things like psychology, things like decision-making, um, and that podcast is called The Science of Success. And it's about improving your decision making. It's about understanding how psychology kind of rules the world around you and learning from experts about how we can become better versions of ourselves. So I launched that podcast last fall uh, through about the end of the year. We had around 7000 downloads, which I kind of when I launched it was had no knowledge or expertise. My, my whole kind of background is in the brick and mortar world. Um, and so I was pretty psyched about having, you know, thousands of people around the globe listening. Um, but then we really hit a major kind of growth curve at the start of this year. And we have to date about uh, 575,000 downloads. We hit number one new and noteworthy on iTunes. And we've had some really, really fascinating people on the show. Um, which we can, you know, dig into all of that different stuff. I don't want to ramble on about my background, but that's kind of a very short uh, version of my introduction. Yeah, no, stoked to have you on the show for for a number of the reasons you just mentioned. Um, so this this idea about better decisions. Um, so Charlie, you know, the abominable no man, as he's <laughs> yeah, I love that phrase, known, right? But yep. um, you know, as he the and I haven't read nearly as much about Charlie as you have, but when he gets into all this stuff about behavioral finance. Um, it's so interesting to me when we hold so many opinions that we're such logical beings, but you know, the proof seems to point otherwise, right? Definitely. Um, so why don't we start with a little bit? Um, well, let's start with your podcast. Tell, tell us some of the favorite people you've had on so far. So we've had some really, really cool people. We've had everybody from Neil Patel to uh, Philip Zimbardo, who's one of the titans of psychology. Um, we've got an upcoming episode with Dan Irely, the author of Predictably Irrational, uh, which is another huge psychology book. Um, but two of my favorite episodes and two that might be uh, the most relevant for somebody who 
is both kind of interested in investing, but also specifically is interested in really improving their ability to make better decisions, which I hope that we can kind of get into some of the meat of what that entails and what that means today. But for somebody who really wants to dig into that, there's two episodes in particular that I, I really enjoy are some of my favorites. Uh, one is an interview with a gentleman named Shane Parrish, who's the author of the Farnham Street blog. And Farnham Street, if uh, for, for listeners who don't know, is kind of a secret reference to Warren Buffett. So his office is on Farnham Street. Um, but Farnham Street is not really just about investing. It's a blog that's all about improving your ability to make better decisions. And Shane is an incredibly thoughtful person about that whole kind of world and that whole field. And so uh, we had an amazing interview with him where we got really deep into a lot of the uh, topics and kind of ideas around improving decision making. Another one of my favorite guests uh, was an episode we did with a guy named Michael Malbison. And he's uh, the head of global strategy for Credit Suisse. And uh, a very successful investor uh, and author. He's written a number of books, some some of which are some of my favorite books, uh, kind of uh, around the same ideas as how could we, you know, he comes from very deep investing background. And in investing, there's a huge disconnect between this sort of uh, action and result, right? There's a lot of variance. There's a lot of noise. And so when you make a decision, it's not always clear. Like you can make a great decision and have a bad outcome. Similarly, you can make a terrible decision and get lucky and have an amazing outcome. And so he's really thought deeply about kind of that whole situation and how you can in a field like business, in a field like investing, in a field like entrepreneurship, uh, where there's a huge, where there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of variance, there's a huge disconnect between inputs and outputs. How can we still apply kind of the ideas and lessons of things like deliberate practice? How can we still refine and improve our uh, ourselves and our ability to get better even though there's the kind of a lack of immediate feedback mechanisms in yeah. those particular can, systems. Can we talk about that? I thought that was fascinating when I was, you know, when we were talking before the show and I was saying, Hey, our consulting firm, Mylan advisors, we're really focused on, you know, how do we take people in corporate America or, or in the government sector and help them become a, an executive advisor to their staff or their coworkers. Right. And how can we take, how can we take the principles of deliberate practice to help them get enough meaningful repetitions in that they actually build this skill set? And when you were coming back and talking about this idea of improving in the situations, even when you don't have immediate feedback, because we don't always know how well a conversation went. We can there's certain things we can judge in our mind. You know, <laughs> was I talking 80 percent of the time or were they talking 80 percent of the time? You know, there's some of these evaluations. But will you talk more about this concept of uh, that we were talking about before the show on kind of internal measurements when you don't have an immediate feedback loop? Absolutely. So I think the biggest thing to focus on, and, and this is something that I mentioned very briefly when we were talking earlier, is deliberate practice is an incredible framework. And it's it's one of the, if not probably the most sort of scientifically validated research-backed ways of improving yourself. And it's really hard if you lack a feedback mechanism to be able to get all of the benefits of deliberate practice. And so in these kind of nebulous fields or these high variance fields or fields that are ruled by randomness, instead of kind of using the moniker of delib deliberate practice, what I kind of focus on or the, 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 the framework that I spend a lot of time thinking about and I've spent the last three or four years really trying to master and understand really deeply is what I call decision making, which is essentially how can you make better decisions? Because decision making, 
flows through almost every area of your life, right? How can you improve your ability to make better decisions? And if you think about it, in in a lot of the best thinking about decision-making comes from fields like investing because investing has such a huge gap between kind of taking an action and seeing a result. And so when you have that gap and you have massive financial rewards associated with being able to accurately kind of understand, predict and improve and and do well in that kind of environment. That's why you see so many, so many people applying so much thinking power to that particular process. Now, that whole focus on kind of the art of decision making and how to improve and become a better decision maker, which we can kind of go down that rabbit hole and yeah, talk yeah, about to. that because that that itself is is really a lifelong journey. Um, you know, fundamentally, and we can start, I think one of the best ways to start is, is there's no kind of get rich quick scheme in terms of being a better decision maker, being a better decision maker and improving your ability to make decisions is something that is a lifelong journey. And that's kind of, you know, Charlie Munger talks about or kind of pulls two specific ideas around decision making that I think both plug in really, really well to the concept of a kind of lifelong process of improving your ability to make better decisions. The first is the idea of mental models. And a mental model is essentially um, a kind of a, a concept that helps explain reality in some way or, or, or some fashion. And so there's lots and lots of examples of mental models, uh, you know, and, and essentially the easiest way to think about them is if you were to take each of the major academic disciplines, let's say mathematics, biology, economics, physics, psychology, all of those kind of if you were to go into a university and look at all the major departments, if you were to take kind of the top 10 ideas from each one of those, all of those concepts would be mental models, Right. Things like supply and demand, that's a mental model. Things like reciprocity bias in psychology, that's a mental model. Um, so mental models is one component of it. The other piece uh, of, of what Charlie Munger refers to as worldly wisdom, which is basically his kind of framework for thinking about and uh, improving the ability to make decisions, is building uh, – there's, there's a couple different ways to think about this, but essentially building – a tree of knowledge. And Elon Musk uses a really, really cool analogy where he talks about knowledge is, is essentially like a tree where you have the trunk and that's kind of the core fundamental ideas from the major uh, disciplines that govern reality. Like I said, biology, physics, uh, economics, etc. Then you have the branches and that's where you start to get into the more specific kind of pieces of information. And then you have, you know, the smaller branches, you have the leaves, etc. If you try to array knowledge in a way that you only focus on or try to just get the leaves, i.e. the tactical, really specific pieces of information about do X, do Y, or like really um, minute and contextual applications of specific strategies of, of kind of bigger principles. If you don't array the knowledge in a way that it's it's based off of a root and a, and a trunk and then branches and then leaves – then the knowledge kind of falls to pieces. And Charlie Munger uses the same analogy when he he talks about a concept called a latticework of mental models. If you try to just kind of, uh, you know, rote, memorize all of these different ideas, they're just going to fall out of your head. What you have to do is build a, uh, a system of thought and kind of organize your thinking around a way, like, around uh, a coherent structure of knowledge to where you build on kind of first principles and then from there, expand out into the bigger 
domains of knowledge. And I know this sounds extremely kind of abstract, but what happens is once you start to focus on, once you kind of embark on this lifelong path of becoming a better decision maker, um, you really start to internalize a lot of these models. And, and at first it seems very daunting and, and very challenging, but over time you start to really internalize them to where you can be in a situation and, and subconsciously you'll sort of flag and trigger and see, okay, this model is applying in this context. And this is an example of, you know, social proof or authority bias taking place, or this is an example of, um, you know, supply and demand, whatever it might be, you can kind of understand and contextualize and apply each of those mental models in real time. And, and, and there's a couple, uh, you know, we can, we can talk more tactically about ways to organize knowledge and information. Um, but there's a couple specific tools that a lot of these people, both from the investing world and, and kind of other spaces use and recommend specifically around, um, how to like, sort of bring these mental models to bear when you need them and how to improve and kind of internalize all these different models. Yeah. So, and just for my own context a bit, um, what's your feeling on like Chip and Dan Heath's book, Decisive, about, you know, coming up with more options so you're choosing between multiple good options? Does that is that related at all to what you're talking about or is, is your focus completely different? So I would say that is a piece of the puzzle, right? Like coming up with more options, that is essentially, and, and I actually have not read Decisive, but that sounds like a an individual mental model, right? That's kind of the idea that the more optionality you that's essentially the mental model of optionality, right? It's like the more options you have, the better choices that you can make. And what happens is if if somebody were to read that book and apply that to every area of their life, there's certain situations where that may not be the case, right? Like the the opposite of that is kind of the book Paradox of Choice, where sometimes having too many choices can be a bad thing. And those are sort of opposing mental models, but they're not really opposing. What happens is, is sometimes you want to have fewer choices and sometimes you want to have more choices. And unless you've mastered and understood both of those different mental models and you know which context one applies and which context the other applies, you're what Charlie Munger calls a man with a hammer. And man with a hammer syndrome is essentially the idea that if, if you only have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. But if you have a whole toolkit, then when you, when you encounter a specific challenge, issue, or problem, you're able to say, oh, this doesn't call for a hammer. This calls for a screwdriver, right? And you can kind of apply that. And so I think that in the context specifically of the book Decisive and sort of the idea of creating more options for yourself. Yeah, it's like, you know, quit choosing between one, op- one awesome option and two crappy options. Like, find enough until you've got two or three good ones to choose between. And, or uh, another question. I see I what have, you're saying. Yeah. So basically, yes, right. Like what you're describing that, that idea is exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. And when I say options, instead of like, it's not like options in the sense of like paths you can take. It's more like options in the sense of like lenses that you can use to understand either a situation or a person mm. or something like that. No, that's a different tweak on it. I like that. Um, and as you're talking there, it sounds like you're using some common language, kind of like Robert Cialdini influence kind of stuff. What, what's your feeling on his methodology or approach? Yeah, I love influence. And, okay. and I would say one of the most important disciplines and the one I would recommend if you're serious about kind of embarking on the journey of making better decisions, uh, one of the best places to start is with psychology because psychology underpins basically every other discipline or anything that governs human relations. 
And for a long time, a lot of academic disciplines are starting to kind of advance and, and leverage and apply psychology specifically within the context of what they're talking about, like something like behavioral finance is a perfect example of that. Um, but for, for a while, a lot of these disciplines completely ignored psychology and many things in many fields still really don't acknowledge it very much at all. <laughs> like the economists who build models with humans making rational choices like robots, right? Yes, exactly. Um, or as they, yeah, they call them econs versus normal people. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and obviously there's very divergent schools of thought in psychology. Who, who are some of your, like, who are some of the ones you identify with or who do you feel like are some authors out there or researchers that, that uh, kind of you feel like are spot on? So I would say there's, there's three specific things I would recommend if you want to understand psychology and and if you want to understand it whether it's to understand people better to influence them to kind of in the direction you want them to go or even to understand yourself or kind of prevent yourself from falling prey to a lot of these biases um there's three things i would say that are that are definitely worth checking out one is as you mentioned the book influenced by robert cialdini that book is essentially the bible of kind of modern day um, psychological thinking around how to create influence with other people. And if you haven't read it, it's it's a, a fascinating read. It's filled with great research studies. Um, and it's really funny read, right? Because similar with the next book I'm going to recommend, you see all these research studies of people who are normal people that are quote unquote rational. And then they make these kind of ridiculous, totally irrational decisions. And it's only once you kind of have the psychological toolkit, right, a.k.a. mental models, right? And Influence talks specifically about six different uh, mental models or psychological biases that if you just master those six, you're already ahead of like 90% of the population. Um, <clears throat> but it's it does a really good job of kind of giving you these great examples of, of all these different biases and how you can both stop yourself from falling prey to them and how you can leverage them to achieve what you want to achieve. The second book I'd recommend is the book Predictably Irrational by Dan Eyerly. Amazing book. Um, it's kind of like I would I would almost call it like the Freakonomics of psychology. So it's a really fun read, very light. You will breeze through it and the whole time you'll be laughing about, again, kind of the same thing, people doing – ridiculous stuff and they're doing it because of a specific bias it's in the reason it's called predictably irrational is because you can see in a repeated and predictable way that people will make the same irrational decision if the environmental factors line up for them to make those decisions the third and this is kind of getting back into munger a little bit is uh, there's an amazing and i've probably watched this a hundred times there's an amazing YouTube video by Charlie Munger. It's called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. It's like an hour-long speech that he gives. It's from like 1997, um, and it's to – I think it's either Harvard or Stanford Law School. And he goes through literally what he calls the 27 standard causes of human misjudgment. And if you think about it, essentially those 27 things are 27 different mental models and they're not super complicated, right? And, and they overlap with some of the stuff from influence and some of the stuff from predictably irrational. Um, but he goes through these 27 standard causes of human misjudgment and gives you kind of a contextual example of each one and explains what it is. And the reason I've said I've listened to it so many times is because if you can just master and understand those 27 biases, which I, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff and, and marching very deliberately down this path for years. And I would say that I've, I've mastered a handful of them at best. Um, but if you can master just those 27 biases, you'll have such an upper hand 
on in any interaction you have with anybody else, which is pretty much all businesses, human interaction, you know, all entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So, so many different things. Can we can we pause on this for a minute? Can you can we do some examples? Can you go through some of these twenty seven things from Charlie and and you know let cover a couple that you've spent some time practicing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the ones that's in both influence uh, and in the the Charlie Munger speech is commitment and consistency bias, right? And this is essentially the idea that if you can get people to commit to something that's totally innocuous. It will plant a subconscious seed in their mind that will then lead them into making uh, totally ridiculous commitments down the road. And I'll give you a specific example. There's there's a research study that Cialdini did, and he talks about it in Influence. It's called the Yard Sign Experiment. And we actually have a whole uh, – we did a whole podcast series on the science of success where we went through each of what we call the weapons of influence, which are the six major principles from the book and kind of did like a 20-minute segment on each one of them. So we have a whole episode about con- commitment and consistency uh, for anybody who wants to kind of dive in and hear more about do you, it. Do you know the episode number off, offhand? Uh, I they don't can, know the they number, can look it but I, okay. yeah, I can link it to you. We, we can put it in show notes. Um, but commitment consistency. So the yard sign experiment, they basically went around and they did a, they did a kind of a test study where they went around, they asked people to put this ridiculous, like oversized, basically almost a billboard in their front yard. Have you seen those big, like wooden, you know, like political signs, you know what I'm talking about? So they asked people to put this sign in their yard that said drive safely. And vast majority of people said no, right? Like it, it was obnoxiously large. And so nobody wanted to do it. They then did another experiment Same thing. They picked a very similar neighborhood kind of demographics wise. They went in two weeks beforehand and just asked them to put a one inch sticker in their window that said drive safely. And then they came back two weeks later, asked them to put up, would you be willing to put a gigantic, the same exact gigantic billboard in your front yard? And I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but it was like 30 or 40% of the people were willing to do it. It was like a massive jump from, from the previous numbers. The only difference being that they had come by two weeks before and asked them to put the tiny little sticker in their window. And what happened was the sticker basically planted these seed in their mind that they were somebody who cared about driving safely, somebody who cared about the public good and cared about kind of keeping people safe. They did another study related to that or kind of a different test case where they also went in and just asked people to sign a petition uh, basically saying that they were a concerned citizen. So nothing about driving. And that one had – I think it was like 50 percent of the amount of people uh, versus the the drive safely sticker. So it wasn't as many but it was still like a marked uptick in people willing to – if they came back two weeks later, put up a giant – the same giant billboard in their yard. And so it's – the, the lesson from commitment consistency bias is basically uh, these tiny little commitments that, that we make can shape our self-image. Once our self-image is changed, we're willing to continue to do, go down that path very deeply to stay consistent with what we believe our self-image to be. And that can both happen to you in the sense of you can be manipulated by that or you can leverage that to potentially – sort of influence other people in the direction that you want them to go. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at my bookshelf and I'm, there's a Seth Godin's book tribes is staring at me. Right. And I got to ask him a question at the Adobe conference, 99 U. Um, I was like one of the guys on the side of the microphone. Right. And I was asking him about people gathering together and he talked about Harley Davidson 
and how they basically created a badge for a certain kind of person for people to start identifying and what an enormous financial result that turned into for them. It sounds like there's something a little bit related there where people, they've like made this commitment to self-identify as this kind of person. Oh, I'm sure. So, you know, one of the things uh, Munger talks about and he uses, he's like a 90 year old guy. So he uses some kind of weird terms, um, but he uses the term Lollapalooza um, to essentially describe sort of what happens when you stack multiple of these mental models together in, in one concentrated effort. And so uh, Harley Davidson's a great example of like four or five psychological biases all at play all at the same time. And that's why it's such a phenomenally successful brand, right? Like you've got a ton of social proof in there. Uh, you definitely have commitment consistency bias. Um, you know, I'd have to kind of go through, uh, I have like a checklist of all these different biases, which, uh, we can get into how important and powerful checklists are too. But there's a bunch of, uh, of kind of biases all wrapped into what makes Harley Davidson so successful. You know, it's making, so one of my buddies, Joey Jorgensen, he's a head designer for Stance Socks and, uh, we used to be at the Burton brand, Burton Snowboards brand, analog clothing. And he talked to me about the Volcom brand logo is like one of the most tattooed logos for for our entire generation. That's crazy. And uh, it's like, think about what that means revenue wise, right? That they've been able to create this thing where people identify so much they're willing to tattoo it, right? Which, you know, Harley's obviously got that going on also. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, okay. So, so uh, we've got this commitment consistency. Let's do another one off these, off this list of 27. All right. So another one that I think is is really easy to understand, and if you can internalize it, you can see it all the time in people's behavior, is denial. Right? Denial is essentially just the idea that reality is too painful to bear, so you distort reality until it's bearable. And while you can definitely have denial, kind of the much larger, you know, deeper context of, of some kind of major life issue, whatever it might be, the reality is people can be in denial about all kinds of crazy, like tiny little things in day-to-day life. And really, anytime somebody uses the word should, they're in denial about what's actually happening in reality, right? And so I don't know if you've read the book Obstacle is the Way by Ryan mm. Holiday. Um, love it, love it, love it. Yeah. He's, um, um, He's supposed to be coming on to talk about uh, the Daily Stoic. I'm so stoked. Oh, yeah. I'm such nice. a fan. That's awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah, he's he's a really cool dude. And uh, love Obstacles the Way, love Ego's the Enemy. Um, but in Obstacle the Way, like one of the three pillars of the whole book is acceptance, right? And it's not kind of acceptance in in the passive sense that we think of it today, but it's it's more about this acceptance of the idea that um, accept reality as it is, not as you want it to be. And so when somebody gets caught up in, you know, oh, I shouldn't have to deal with this, or this shouldn't be this way, or, you know, this is BS that I'm having to put up with this, or like, I can't believe they keep doing this. Like all of those are, are essentially kind of examples of denial. And instead of getting caught up in the emotional cycle of why does this have to be this way, the sooner you just say, okay, this is this way. And now what am I going to do about it? The faster you can kind of get to solving that issue. And so self-deception and denial, which is one of the biases that Munger talks about, is something that's so simple. Everybody hears it and they go, yeah, of course, denial is a thing. And then when you actually think about it and apply it, you can see so many cases of denial distorting people's thinking in your day-to-day existence that it's staggering. 
You know, it's that idea that when faced with changing one's mind or changing the facts, the overwhelming majority of people would rather ignore facts or misconstrue facts rather than doing the work of changing their mind, huh? I actually have, have not heard that quote, but I love that. That's a perfect and very succinct way to describe that. Um, okay, so talk to us about, you know, I think you and I, you know, share a, a, a love of all things Berkshire or whatever, but uh when you, you've latched on to something like this and you're saying, okay, yeah, that's something I want to improve. What, what does that look like for you? How, how have you implemented it or what, what's your, what have you done to actively improve your decision making besides learning about what to do? How did you start yeah, to practice so it? How did you start there, to implement there's, it? There's three pieces to that puzzle. Okay. The, the first, which I know you're a huge fan of, is just reading, reading widely, reading a ton and really trying to just gather knowledge from the smartest people and and the best people. But it's really important, and this is something, this is actually something we talk about a lot in the interview I did with Shane Parrish. Don't focus on knowledge that is uh, kind of temporal in the sense that it's gonna go away. Like, only focus on knowledge that never changes, right? And that's Mm. why it's so important to, that's why I I love and I'm so obsessed with the idea of improving kind of the core skill set of decision making. Because I can go read, you know, spending three hours reading about like the top 20 best SEO tactics, that stuff is going to be irrelevant in like two or three years, especially it's going to be completely irrelevant in like five years. And so any sort of very granular, very tactical knowledge like that, that's not useful information to build a a robust thinking and decision making machine that will improve you know your entire life like if you if you invest in knowledge and information that never changes you're going to be investing in so even if you get like 1% better at that every single thing you think about for the rest of your life is going to be you're going to be 1% better at thinking about that right whereas if i get really detailed into like the top 15 ways to influence people with tweets like in 10 years, that's going to be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And so focusing on like reading deeply and widely, but reading specifically around knowledge and information that isn't going to change or that is kind of timeless is super important. And that's why I talk about or kind of that goes back to the idea of just start with the trunks of the of the knowledge, right? Like start with the the basic principles that govern reality. Like how much do you know about the core principles of physics, the core principles of biology, the core principles of economics? Like, you know, you could spend years just kind of mastering that stuff. But every one of these models that you that you master adds another tool to your tool belt, right? And so even if you even if today you have, you know, everybody has kind of a number of mental models that help them understand reality. The question is just, you know, maybe today that somebody's operating with like five or six core models that describe most of what happens to them. <clears throat> if you can just learn five or six more, you've doubled your ability to handle different kinds of situations and to make more effective decisions. Hmm. You know, I think we need to cut it off here for part one. But everybody better tune in to the next show because if you want part two and three of this answer, that's where you're going to get it. There are two more coming, so you better stay tuned. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes so we're going to break the interviews in half please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview and as always come to icollective.co for show notes and to learn more about child rescue go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with thanks for listening hi 
Welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.